Thank you, Kent and Barbara, for getting all that together. <laughs> that was great. Good song. And welcome to those of you joining us on live stream on a uh, Mother's Day Sunday evening. We're glad that you're with us and can be. On Sunday nights, we have started in the book of Hosea, so in your Old Testament, the first of the 12 minor prophets. As I said last week, this comes right after the book of Daniel, so if you make it to Daniel easily, Hosea's the next book. Interesting about chapter 2, and, and uh, what I'm trying to do in this series, since there are uh, 14 chapters, I'm trying to do a uh, message from each chapter each night, so that means I'm not going to just cover every verse, uh, but uh, we'll, we'll be looking at each chapter. And this chapter just happens to be the longest one of the book, so aren't you glad I'm not going to go through sentence by sentence? But it's interesting that uh, next week uh, is the shortest chapter of the book, so just five verses uh, next week. The whole uh, chapter, chapter 2 of Hosea, is about the nation Israel. As you know, in the introduction to this book that we talked about, uh, Hosea marries Gomer, a woman that God tells him is going to be unfaithful to him, but he is going to learn this lesson uh, as he goes uh, through his whole ordeal with Gomer as his wife, who becomes unfaithful, and then he takes her back later, and so forth. That's what's happened to God in Israel. And so that's why in chapter 2, you have this long chapter about how Israel has walked away from God and been unfaithful to God. And then in the end, God will take her back. That will all be applied to Hosea and Gomer in chapter 3 in those short verses that we'll look at next week, where now, Gomer, that you or uh, Hosea, you've seen what has happened between me and Israel, and so this is what will happen between you and your wife, too. So we'll see the application of that to Hosea next week. So uh, I'm not really going to speak to you much about verses 1 through 13. If you have a, a Bible, for example, that has a, a title uh, from chapter verse uh, 14 on, Mine has restoration of Israel, and that's correct. So from, from 14 to the end of the chapter are the verses I want us to look at tonight. But let me just give you a, a quick summary, of course, of what's happening in those verses leading up to it. From 2 to 5, you have a description of the enormity of Israel's sin. For example, chapter, uh, verse 2, bring charges against your mother. Bring charges. She is not my wife, nor am I her husband. That's God speaking to Israel of all things. Look at verse 4. I will not have mercy on her children, for they are children of harlotry. Again, referring to Israel uh, as God's people and what they have done. And, and so these first five verses describe her sin. And then in verse 6 to 13, there's the punishment meted out by God upon them. So verse 6 starts off saying, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her paths. Verse 9, Therefore, I will return and take away my grain in its time and my new wine in its season, and I will take back my wool and my linen. In other words, all that I've blessed you with, I'm going to take back. 
Verse 12, I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she has said, these are my rewards that my lovers have given me. So I will make them a forest rather than a, a, a vine or vineyard, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. And 13 begins with, I will punish her for the days of the Baals to which she burned incense. And so you see in these first verses her sin and God's promise of punishment. And as you see, in the days of Hosea in the 700s B.C., God brought the Assyrians into the land and they were taken away captive. And their land did turn into a wilderness and they have been gone into captivity ever since. And so that has happened. Now, in uh, uh, verses uh, after that, we find God restoring her. Let, let me read a, a few words from Warren Wiersbe. I thought this was good. He said, since the people were acting like prostitutes, God would treat them like prostitutes and shame them publicly. He would no longer claim the nation as his wife because she had broken the solemn marriage covenant and consorted with idols. According to the Hebrew law, adultery was a capital crime, punishable by death. But God announced that he would discipline Israel, but not destroy her. So it's, it's uh, right for us to realize that in the Old Testament, adultery, uh, short of remarriage, could be forgiven and taken back. But at the same time, adultery was a, was a, a punishable offense by death. For example, Leviticus 20.10 says, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, or vice versa, of course, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. That's pretty rough language, isn't it? And yet, Here's something else that we notice, and that is that God made provision so that it didn't always have to be the death penalty. So when uh, adultery took place in the Old Testament, uh, you find, for example, in Deuteronomy 24, Moses giving that famous statement about uh, that uh, if a wife is unfaithful, give her a writing of divorcement so you could divorce her rather than have her killed which was nice. And that happened quite a few times. As a matter of fact, to some very famous people, David, the king himself, by law, David should have been put to death. Uh, if the same penalty for the king applies to everyone else. But I saved this verse in 2 Samuel 12 when Nathan the prophet comes back to David after his sin and so, and he confronts him and says, Thou art the man. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And so God didn't always apply that in every case. His son Solomon, right? Uh, as king of Israel in his older days, uh, sinned in this way terribly. But he was not put to death. That's why... For example, we have in, uh, in the New Testament, uh, and I'm going to explain a little more about the, the betrothal period here in a, a few minutes, but uh, they were considered, the, the vows of the marriage were taken at the betrothal time. And so that part of the marriage was, was uh, done. And so if somebody was unfaithful during that betrothal time, uh, then they could be put to death because the vows were already made. 
But uh, Joseph thought that that could happen to Mary, but what did he do? He began to divorce her, which is what Moses said you could do. And he would have done that, except that God, of course, intervened and said, no, this is of God. Go ahead and marry her, and I'll take care of the rest, which, of course, God did. So you have all of that mixture of, of rules and laws and things in the Old Testament. God's applying them to the nation of Israel as she was unfaithful to God, but God will forgive her adultery to idols and bring her back uh, in the latter days. And that's what we're going to look at from verse 14 to the end of this chapter. Almost in every chapter, you have these words, uh, at, and usually toward the end of the chapter, of how God will restore. Even though Israel has been unfaithful, like Gomer is unfaithful to Hosea. Israel's been unfaithful, but God will restore her in the end and bring her back and, and uh, make a covenant with her again. So even though we read last week in Jeremiah 3, uh, God says he divorced Israel literally. But she hasn't married another because in the Old Testament law, if, if she married another person, then you can't take her back. But since she didn't do that, she was only an adulteress, God will forgive her and bring her back. Okay, so verse 14 to the end is Israel's restoration, we could say remarriage, I guess, which will happen in the latter days. So notice a few things about these verses. First of all, three times in these verses, you see the word in that day. It's in verse 16. It shall, come, it shall be in that day. It's in verse 18. In that day I will make a covenant with them. And again in verse 21, it shall come to pass in that day. <clears throat> I, I call this a grammatical tag. You find it in almost all the prophets and especially the, the uh, minor prophets. And to me, that is a signal that I'm pointing toward the end time. I'm pointing toward that day when Messiah comes. I'm pointing toward that day when the kingdom of God will be established on the earth. And sure enough, in these verses, that's exactly what it points to. Also, uh, you find the expression, I will, for example, in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. And verse 15, I will give her. And so all the way through, uh, there are uh, eight of those I wills as God is going to do to Israel in the end time. How really he's going to forgive Israel and bring her back. So notice I, I have three thoughts here to divide these verses up in. And, and really these are the paragraphs in the Bible. The first is Israel will be regenerated. They will come back to God in belief. Israel right now is in unbelief. Uh, when the Messiah, when when uh, the the tribulation period happens, uh, God will be reaching out to Israel. Some of them will come back in true belief. Some of them will not. Uh, but it is a time of their regeneration, and they will be saved, many of them, so that when the kingdom of God starts, everybody who goes into the kingdom is born again, Jew and Gentile. Uh, the resurrected people and those of us who have been raptured before, we all enter the kingdom of God as believers, and Israel will have to do that also. Now, read, if, read these uh, two verses with me in 14 and 15. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. 
and I will give her the vineyards from there. And notice this, and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. That's the title of my message tonight, Israel's Valley of Achor. Now, you might have a reference there in your Bible, or maybe you happen to remember what happened in the Valley of Achor. Do you remember that? This is where Israel had come across the Jordan River, come up to Jericho, and by God's help and miraculous means, Jericho is demolished and they take it easily. Well, they have to go from there up through the valley of Achor to a little town called Ai, which is nothing. It's a simple little town. Don't even take very many men with you. And they go up there and they're defeated at Ai in the valley of Achor. Why are they defeated? Because they've sinned, if you remember. I save these verses, Joshua 7, 24. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons and his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, and his sheep, and his tent, and all that they had, and brought them to the valley of Achor. They had taken all of these goods out of Jericho. God had said, when I destroy Jericho, leave it. Don't take anything out. These are idols and the rest. Well, Achan and his family took gold and idols and things from Jericho and were hiding them. They were going to keep them for themselves. God sees that, doesn't he? God sees what we do in secret. And so God lets them be defeated at that little town of Ai because of Achan's sin. So then verse 25 says, And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. It's a pretty rough life in the Old Testament, even in God's Israel. But what happened? So they have come into the land. God's giving them the land, and they come to a place of defeat. The valley of Achor is to them a place of defeat. They, they sinned against God. God punished them there in that. And so God had to restore them and take them on into the land. And they never did really clear the whole land out of all of the Gentile tribes that God wanted cleared out. So it, 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 to the Israelites, the Valley of Achor was a bad memory. And it was a bad place to, in their history. But what does it say here? He will make the Valley of Achor as a door of hope. It will be a door of hope to them. God will forgive them. And now when in these last days, when Israel is restored and the kingdom of God comes to the earth, then rather than having even that valley as a bad memory, they're going to have it as a door of hope. As they go into the land this time, and as they go into the kingdom of God, uh, it will be a blessing to them. Isaiah used this same expression when he's talking about the kingdom of God in Isaiah 65, 10, Sharon shall be a fold of flocks and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. And so even Isaiah refers to this same thing that's happening. And then another thing to notice in these verses is in verse 14, I will speak comfort to her. I will speak comfort to her. Do you remember where you heard those words, comfort my people? In the old version, 
comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Well, if you've gone to Handel's Messiah, uh, you heard that as the first words in that, in that great song. Comfort ye, comfort ye. Why is that? Because in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 1, where those words come from, from there to the end of his book, it's all about the kingdom of God. When Messiah comes and this kingdom of God is established, comfort will come to Israel. And so the whole passage in Isaiah 40, verse 1, I'm reading the New King James, says, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem. Cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And so... Uh, that great song starts out that way. That great passage in Isaiah starts out that way. And here we have it uh, reminding Hosea that in the end, Israel will be comforted. And they will be regenerated. I think I've used this verse before, not, not yet in this study, but it, it's in Ezekiel 20. I want you to notice also in verse 14 the word wilderness. I will bring her into the wilderness. When the Lord comes back and his feet touch upon the Mount of Olives and that mountain splits in half, the Jews that are walled up in Jerusalem will be able to escape out through that valley and they will go out to meet their Savior in the wilderness, it's said. And this is described specifically in Ezekiel 20. And so in those uh, verses and in that whole chapter of Ezekiel 20, describing this time when Messiah returns, it describes a time when, when God will bring Israel out into the wilderness and he will separate them like a sheep separates the, the sheep from the goat, uh, shepherd from the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, and so forth. I'll read it to you. Ezekiel 20, 33 says, As I live, saith the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with fury poured out, I will rule over you. Verse 35 says, I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will plead my case with you face to face. Verse 37 says, I will make you pass under the rod and bring you into the bond of the covenant. That's a picture of a shepherd who, when the sheep are going through the gate into the sheepfold or out, he has his rod and he's holding it over it and he's counting his sheep. These are my sheep. These are not my sheep. I'll make you to pass under the rod. And so it is, this is a shepherd's picture of when Messiah returns, he will bring his people into the wilderness and he will make them pass under the rod and only those who are born again, regenerated, will get to enter into the kingdom of God. And so here, that bringing her into the wilderness is just mentioned here in verse 14. So all of these things are yet to come. Isn't that amazing to us? I mean... Christ hasn't come back the second time yet. And this is speaking not of the rapture where the church gets to go uh, to be with the Lord, but this is the glorious return of Christ when he comes back to the earth and he begins to do these things for Israel. Israel still is the center of the earth, the navel of the earth, the Bible calls them, and it is the center of prophetic activity. So though these things haven't begun yet, when the tribulation period begins and then the kingdom of God 
uh, uh, commences. All of this will happen in the Middle East around Israel. And that's why it's even so important today and so interesting to watch how the nations align themselves and the attitudes toward Israel and, and uh, the volatile nature of that whole area. You can just see these things begin to happen. And remember, seven years of great tribulation all revolving around Israel and climaxing in Armageddon right there north of Jerusalem. All of this coming yet in the future when these things begin to happen. But there's going to be Israel's regeneration, and he speaks of that in verses 14 and 15. Then 16 and 17, and really through verse 20, but I'm, I'm going to save 18 and use it with my third group, is Israel's renewal. In other words, God's going to make them his people again. Twice here, he says, in that day. We've read those two in, in verse 16 and verse 18. But let's, let's uh, read a few of these. I, I want you to notice, by the way, the marriage language. As we read these verses, pick up on the word husband, the word covenant, the word betrothal, and so forth. It, it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day... I will make a covenant with them, with the beasts of the earth, with the birds of the air, with the creeping things of the ground, uh, bow and uh, sword and, uh, of battle I will scatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. I kind of take that along with verse 21 following. But look at verse 19. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. You see all that marriage language taking place there. You know that the word betrothal, the word betrothed, means to woo a virgin. In the Hebrew, that's exactly what the word means. To, to woo someone you want to be your wife, to betroth. I mean, we, we speak about getting engaged to one another. Our engagement isn't nearly as binding as the, the betrothal period. Uh, but, uh, you know, you find somebody you want to marry and you get engaged uh, because that's the person you found. You want to get married. Well, that's what betrothal means. And so God is going to do that and make a covenant with them. Let me remind you again that in the, in the Jewish culture, they made their vows when the betrothal agreement was made. Sometimes that was made between the parents. I've always said, I'm glad that's not in my culture, uh, you know, but... Uh, I'm glad I got to make my own choice, but my folks, honey, would love you. They say, of course, they did, but <laughs> but they may, but we traditionally make our vows at the marriage altar, right? I mean, and and everything up to that point can be called off with with no repercussion other than hurt feelings. But but in those days, since the vows were made, it took a a a, a divorce uh, agreement to break those vows. And then the consummation was made later in the father's house. To us, the vows are taken at the marriage ceremony and the consummation is made in the honeymoon. So we kind of do it more all together. They did it sometimes years apart even. It could be made. So in Israel's case here, 
uh, God had made them, uh, had betrothed himself to them through the covenants he made, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and all of those. And they became unfaithful in that betrothal period is what, of course, is being uh, described here. If you see in verse 19 and 20, it's as if God is saying, here's my vows to you. Notice, notice these words. And, and by the way, I, uh, I always say these vows when I'm doing weddings, and I make them repeat this to me. I take thee to be my wife or my husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live. And they have to say, yeah, I do, right? They have to say, I, I will do that. Well, those are vows. And by the way, folks, here's my own uh, little uh, thing I, I have to do. I don't, think, I don't think husbands and wives should write their own vows. I think these vows should be made before God in a way that they are agreeing to something that has to be done. And that's what a, that's what a marriage covenant is. Do you know that these vows are very close to them that I just read to you go all the way back to the 1600s in England? This is a Western tradition, if you will, of Western Christianity that has been handed down over the generations, they had to make these vows to one another that they will do them before God. And I think there's still good things to do. So God has done that with Israel. But look, in, uh, and again, uh, the, in uh, verses uh, 19 and 20, and notice this wording, I will betroth you to me forever. Here are the vows. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness, justice, in loving kindness, in mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Those are pretty good vows between one person and another. Every, every Christian marriage is a testimony to God's faithfulness. That's, that's what Ephesians 5 is all about. As, as God parallels the human marriage and the marriage of Christ to his bride, the church, every human marriage that we enter into is a testimony, it's an illustration, it's a picture to the world of how faithful God is to us. And Paul makes that very plain in Ephesians 5. So that was also to be true, should have been true in Israel as well. So there's Israel's renewal. Then thirdly, we have Israel's restoration from verse 21 to the end, but I also include verse 18. And that is restoration in the sense that when this kingdom of God comes, this millennial reign of Christ, a thousand years Jesus will reign on the earth, and this earth will be brought back up to, to a place like the Garden of Eden. I mean, if, if you just kind of picture way back there in the garden, God made the world this way, and everything was perfect, everything was very good, and then sin came along, right? And now all of that dropped way down, and we've been in this lower shelf ever since then. A, a world of death, a world of illness, a world of sickness, a world of hatred and strife and all of that. Jesus will come back and lift that back up to this high plane, and for a thousand years on this earth, it will be more like the Garden of Eden 
uh, than anything else. Sin will still be there and death will still be there, but not nearly to the degree that we see now. So in these prophetic passages of the restoration time of Israel, you see a lot of references to how the earth itself is going to change. So back up to verse 18. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air. I mean, doesn't, won't the lion lie down with the lamb? Yes, he will. With the creeping things of the earth. I'm glad about that one. I had to spray those ants the other day. And uh, I'd be glad when, uh, you know, those creeping things behave themselves. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth. I will make them all lie down safely. You see the change in this world. And, and you know, isn't, folks, isn't that what people want today? I think the lost person in his or her heart wants that. He or she just doesn't know how to get it. Some people think you get it by taking over the world in, you know, in war. Some people think you, you get it by giving people everything they want. Some people think you get this by you know, whatever uh, is in the lust of your heart you should have. No, we will get what people really want when Jesus Christ comes back and brings this earth back up to the place it should be. And that will be the desire of our hearts. Of course, those who truly know him as Savior will be the ones to enjoy this. So then uh, uh, you have again uh, in, uh, in verses 21 to 23, it shall come to pass in that day, I will answer, says the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall, be, shall answer with grain, with new wine, with oil. I uh, copied a page out of a, a great book I, I read years ago by a guy named George Peters, George N.H. Peters, who lived in the 1800s, and he started out as a Lutheran. The Lutherans, some of them are brothers in Christ, don't believe in a thousand-year millennial reign. That to their theology, we're in the kingdom of God now. This is as good as it gets. And George started out that way. And what I like about him was he's a Buckeye. I grew up in Ohio, you know, and he was a Buckeye in the early 1800s. A Buckeye, by the way, is a hairless nut with little or no commercial value. My, I've learned that definition a long time ago. And uh, he studied the kingdom of God. And I have a three-volume set of about a hundred, or um, excuse me, about six to eight hundred pages in every volume. And in those volumes, he quotes over 4,000 different authors. Now, how can a man in a little country church in Ohio in the early 1800s find his way to 4,000 different books about the kingdom of God? But he did. When he got done studying it, he became a premillennialist. And the Lutheran church defrocked him and said, you're out of here. And so he writes this three-volume work called The Theocratic Kingdom, which you can still buy, and uh, try reading it. It's, it's quite a, a hefty thing to read. So I'm saying, in volume two, in the middle of this second volume, he begins listing all of the things that are going to change on the earth when the kingdom of God comes. And he gives 62 of them with multiple verses of each one, 62 things that are going to change. And he gets to the end of that list and he says, and this is quote, a brief summary of some of them. 
This is how much the earth is going to change when the Lord comes back and brings the kingdom of God to the earth. Here are, uh, you know, I could have followed many of those references and others, but for example, uh, Zechariah 8.12 says, For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give its fruit, the ground shall give her increase, the heavens shall give their due. I will cause the remnant of this people to possess these. Psalm 67, Then the earth shall yield her increase, and God, our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all ends of the earth shall fear him. Amos 9.13, Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. Listen to that expression again. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him that sows seed. That is his way of expressing the earth will be so fruitful and bring forth its goods in such a way that you can hardly get the seed in the ground before the guy who's harvesting it is ready to harvest it. Kind of like the grass in my backyard right now. You know, you, <laughs> by the time you get it cut, it, you start again on the other end because it's growing. So the, the, the fruit of the earth, the earth itself will be that fruitful. God will let the earth do its thing again. And Amos goes on. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine. All the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land that I will give them, says the Lord God. When will Israel again live in their promised land that God gave them when Jesus Christ comes back. And so all of these are happening, and, and God is, is allowing Hosea to write these things down uh, of all the things that will come to pass. Now, I want you to notice, lastly, that there's kind of a back and forth between God and Israel in verses 21, 22, and 23. It's, it's almost like taking vows again. You know, again, when you have two people stand before you at, the, at, at a marriage altar, I'm saying, uh, uh, will you do these things? And I better hear a, I do. <laughs> and will you do these things? I better hear an I do. And they can say a lot of other things in that service, but they got to say those things to me before I say done. <laughs> you know, uh, somebody said, I can do a wedding service in five words. No, you can't. Yes, I see. I would say, do you and do you, and then it's done. And, then, and that would be it. That's what it takes for a wedding service. But notice what happens here. Verse 21, it shall come to pass in that day, I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. I think that simply means I'm going to say to the heavens, do your thing, and they're going to say to the earth, do your thing. It's kind of like I'm going to drop down the water and water this earth, and the earth will do its thing. The earth shall answer with grain, new wine, and oil. But notice, they shall answer. That is, I think, the people. What's that word? Jezreel. They shall answer Jezreel. Do you remember what the child whose name is Jezreel means? It means scatter or sow, S-O-W, sow the seed. Jezreel means to sow. Well, what are we seeing here? When God says, I will do this, the people shout, sow the seed. 
scatter the seed, Jezreel. And then notice uh, verse 22, uh, or, or excuse me, verse uh, uh, 20, 23, I will have, uh, I, I will sow her for myself. Okay, so he answers, I will sow for myself. And then he says, I will have mercy upon her who had not obtained mercy. You might have a little note there of lo ruama. Remember the, the child lo ruama, which said no mercy? He had to name that, that girl no mercy? Well, I will give mercy where there's not been mercy. Next, he says in verse 23, I will say to those who are not my people, who was that? Lo am I. That son was not. And those who are not my people, you are my people, am I? So all three children from chapter 1 that Hosea had to have a name with these names, God is saying your children are picturing what I'm going to do with Israel in the end times. Though they've not received mercy, though they're not my people, they will be my people. And what will Israel say back to them? And they shall say, you are my God. Israel will be restored, as God said they would. When we read chapter 3 and go through these verses real quickly, just look at verse 5 of chapter 3. Afterward, again, the children of Israel shall return, seek the Lord their God and David their king, and fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. This is a common theme throughout this book. I turn to the end of, of a, a number of the, the minor prophets, and, and almost always they end with some kind of words like this. Here's Zephaniah, that little three-chapter book. Zephaniah from verse 14 to the end says, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy." The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Let, uh, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Those days are coming when, the, when God himself as the bridegroom takes back his bride Israel again and blesses her in the land. So I say, Israel, Paul said, you know, in, in Romans chapter 11, Israel concerning the gospel is our enemy today. What he means in that chapter is, not that we hate Israel, not that we wish uh, the nation of Israel bad. It is that there's no harder person to reach with the gospel than the Jewish person today. And even though they're God's people, they're estranged. They've gone off and committed adultery with all the other things in this world. And Paul calls them an enemy for the gospel's sake. But right after that, in Romans 11, beginning in verse 28, but concerning the election of God, he says, they are beloved. God, these are God's people, God's elected people. And so he calls them beloved. And right after that, in that chapter, it says the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. When God calls and God says it's going to be done, it will be done. 
And so prophetic fulfillments will be in Israel when God comes back, the Lord Jesus comes back, and establishes them again as his wife and as the kingdom of God. A great day is coming. And so chapter 2, a long chapter, uh, has some really beautiful things to, in it to say about these things. Okay, stand with me if you will. We'll think about these things as we sing a song. We'll thank God for his faithfulness too. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these wonderful words. Thank you for reminding us again how though we see such a dark world around us and we, we see this world as, as a broken world, so many are enemies of the gospel. But there's coming a day when uh, the entire world will follow you and believe in you. And we look forward to that day and we thank you for the promises that will come. So as we think about these things, as we close our service and sing this song, may you be glorified by it. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Ken's going to come and lead us. <laughs>